It's really good to see you all this morning. I, um, I just there's a there's a feeling that happens for me on some on, on some Sundays when I'm up here and I'm just seeing all of you. And there's some folks I haven't seen in a while who are here, and it's great to see you. There's some regulars. Welcome back, regulars. It's great to see you. Um, there's there's some folks up. I see you, balcony people. Like I know you think you're hiding up there, maybe, but you're not. I see you. And there's some beautiful embodied singing of Spirit of Life up there, which I was really really grooving on. Um, and, and you're going to hear from Marnita later on in the service. And we actually connected, it was last Monday, right? It was last Monday at a community conversation around restoring the name of um, the lake we currently call Lake Calhoun to Bede Makaska. So lots of, um, lots of feels this morning. I'm just glad to be here with you all. So I want to start with this story. A couple of um, weeks ago, at the very beginning of November, the worship team of First Universalist, we were holding a meeting with Give, Get, Sistet. This is our, this group that we've been working with the last couple of years. They are our artists in residence this year. We're in a deeply collaborative space with them as we think about and plan worship. And during the meeting, we started having this conversation about social justice and science fiction. And specifically, some of you know where this is going, I imagine, specifically, we were talking about Octavia Butler. Some of you know her. She is a African-American science fiction writer. She passed away in 2006, but she has this huge body of work that has really spoken to and inspired a generation of um, science fiction writers, but also social justice seekers and advocates. Some of her books, you may have read them, um, are uh, Parable of the Sower, Fledgling, and Kindred, and she's written a number of other ones. One of, the, one of the reviewers who kind of looked at her body of work and was saying, like, here's what Octavia Butler is about, said this, that she defied formulaic science fiction writing while exploiting the freedom of the genre to take her usually female and non-white characters to places where mainstream fiction would tend to deny them. Several years ago, a book of essays called Octavia's Brood, written by contemporary science fiction writers and movement-building authors, came out. The co-editors of this book, Adrian Marie Brown and Walida Imarisha, were interviewed a few years ago. And I just want to share part of this interview with you because it was um, a piece of the conversation we had with Givget Sistet. So this is Walida um, talking in this interview. She says this, anytime we try to envision a different world without poverty, without prisons, without capitalism and the exploitations of capitalism, without war, we are engaging in science fiction. Anytime we envision a different world, we're engaging in science fiction. When we can dream those realities together, when that dream is shared in a body of people, that's when we begin to build them right here and right now. Walida Imarisha continues, realism, she says, realism tends to occupy a higher place in the hierarchy of literature than science fiction, especially among folks who are radical, progressive, and left. I've met many people, she says, who are very proud that they only read nonfiction. And I feel very sad for them, she says, because we have to be able to imagine something else. And as an aside, I want to say, I don't presume 
I see some of you nodding, and maybe some of you are like, wait a second, I read science. So I don't presume to know what you read. You may be, we may have a congregation full of avid science fiction readers. I don't know. I'm just sharing this uh, quote with you. She goes on to say, in science fiction, we don't have to stay contained within what is possible. We can start with the question, what do we want? What do we want versus what is realistic? We start with the question, what is possible? What frees us from the constraints, from the systems, from the ways we are bound up in less than we could be, bringing our full humanity to bear? What is possible? What do we want? What do we want from this world, from our human community living in relationship with this planet? Said another way, what is God's vision? or love's vision for the world. And what I find really interesting about this set of questions in this play of science fiction and justice is even though I spent a, um, a bunch of time in seminary and a bunch of time studying the Bible, and I continue to do that as part of my learning and growing, no one ever looks at the Bible and says science fiction. And there's a reason for that. I mean, a lot of that's historical. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's actually grounded in real places with real people that has historical, you can kind of benchmark it to particular time periods and all of that. But what's amazing about the Bible, when you look at communities of people who are maybe suffering or facing some kind of oppression or some sort of injustice or circumstances where their full humanity is not alive in the world, they find hope and possibility from what I think are full-fledged science fiction writers, and that is the Hebrew prophets and Jesus. Think of this. Jesus in his ministry, I'm talking about Jesus, the human being here, Jesus in his ministry didn't get stuck on the question, what is realistic? Jesus didn't, you know, start his ministry of radical inclusion and welcome, being like, well, it's probably not realistic to have those folks be a part of this community or those people over there. He lived and breathed the question, what do we want? What do we want? What is love calling out of us? What is God's vision for this world? And what he believed was fundamentally at the root of reality, the the hallmark of reality was this deep interconnectedness and his vision, his dream, what he wanted for the world was radical table fellowship, beloved community, a place where everyone was welcome, where power was shared. Given the political realities of his time, and remember he lived under the Roman Empire and the Roman emperor who was similar to God, understood as a godlike figure, and these Roman rulers who lived over the different land in the empire, this vision was radical, this vision where everyone would have enough, where those who were at the first place in the line would go to the back of the line, where men and women and trans folks would all be equal. You could call this pure science fiction, this vision of radical table fellowship. As theologian and writer Sally McFaig notes, food, and this was central to the vision that Jesus had, food unites all creatures at the level of both need and pleasure. 
Food can be shared with any other and all others. Sally McFaig continues, Jesus' table fellowship with the outcasts of society, his eating with them as a friend, epitomized the scandal of inclusiveness of his time. For he invited the others that were rejected to the fellowship at that table and of that meal. Thus, Sally McFaig continues, Jesus' invitation to the outsiders to join him as friends at the table, it became an enacted parable of God's friendship with humanity. The God of Jesus is the one who invites us to the table to eat together as friends. In his ministry, Jesus wasn't stuck in the let's be realistic camp. He was poking at the empire and the powers that be. He was saying, love's vision is for an inclusive table, a place that will upend the old paradigms of power and oppression. And what we know from the biblical story, what we know in our own lives, what we know from our history is that being a dreamer, being a science fiction writer, if you will, being someone who says, surely something else is possible here, that is not easy. That is not an easy path. It's often easier and safer just to say, let's be realistic here. I say this sometimes, it's like, whoa, 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 that's a little too quick. That idea is a little too big. Let's just be realistic about what we can do. And it happens in our own lives and in our communities as well. And sometimes that happens because maybe we're the one in power and the change that would come would upend the sense of control or security we feel and we don't wanna lose that. Be realistic. And at the same time, I'm sure you have felt this. Maybe you have to arc back into your childhood. Maybe you have to go back to your young adulthood. That sense of be realistic when someone says that to you. You have a dream. You have a vision. You have a, a sense of what could be. And someone's like, no, be, be realistic there. That can leave you feeling stuck, right? As if you're climbing a wall. And we heard this so beautifully described earlier this morning. Climbing this wall and there's this huge bulge, this thing that's in your way. And you just, you're stuck. You don't know if you can make it over the top. And then you start to feel helpless and powerless and just stuck. And here's what I wanna invite us to do this morning. In that stuck space, when we are there, there are some helpful questions we can ask that we can let sort of fill our minds. Who benefits from things staying stuck? Who benefits when we're just being realistic? Who benefits when our imaginations shrivel about how we could be with one another? When our imaginations shrivel and we just stop believing that another way or another world is possible? And if we deeply listen to the voices of those around us, maybe those at the margins, maybe those old friends or people who have been with us through so much, those who are rooting for us to get unstuck and be free, we will, we will hear them say these things. Well, those in power benefit if it stays this way. Those who reap the rewards of the status quo will benefit if it stays this way. Those who are already well off, well, they'll still be well off if it stays this way. And what I know in my bones, what I feel more and more every day I am with you is that it is faith and it is the work of faith communities to help us get unstuck 
It is faith and faith communities that help us move from this place of comfort into this place of what if. Let's dream. Where is love calling me? Into that kind of space. Church is a place to align ourselves with a vision that is bigger than the present reality that we know, that is filled with some crazy fictional ideas of what could be. And that, friends, is the whole point of our holiday giving project, which we are launching today. Our holiday giving project is really a kind of science fiction project, if you will. It's a new way to approach Christmas and the winter holidays. Some of you are familiar with this and some of you aren't. I want to explain it so you have the context for what we're launching today and then it culminates on December 17th. When Jen Crow came here five years ago, she brought this idea of the Holiday Giving Project with her from Rochester, New York, from the church she served there. So in 2013, we launched our very first Holiday Giving Project. We invited the entire congregation, all of you, to look at your holiday spending, to cut it in half or a quarter, to do what you could as you were able, and then collectively pool all that we had saved together. And that year, as you remember, we raised enough money to build a home for a family working in partnership with Habitat for Humanity. We called it the house that love built. And it was, it was amazing. Like that took, that idea took root in the whole congregation. There were, there were people who like made mango chutney and were selling it down in the social hall between the services leading up to the big day when we collected all the gifts. Our, our children were involved in it. Were, our son like brought in quarters and nickels and dimes. Like people were really thinking creatively, inviting their extended family into this. Two years later, in 2015, the Holiday Giving Project supported Beacon Interfaith Housing Alliance, another one of our partners, and we raised money for youth, youth housing and the wraparound social services that went with that, and money to help launch Great River Landing, a housing complex for formerly incarcerated men. This year, 19 organizations applied to be our Holiday Giving recipient. And the holiday giving team, I know some of those members are here, you can meet them downstairs after the service. Uh, they looked through those and used kind of our racial justice lens and awareness and just really deliberated thoughtfully for a number of days. And they finally chose Marnita's table as our recipient, recognizing the deep equity work they're doing and how our gift might support and further that work. So I'm really delighted that Marnita, Marnita um, Schradel is here with us today. And we, I said this to you at the first service, I'm gonna say it again. Um, she's something of a science fiction writer. She has a vision of how this world and this community could be around a table where voices, all voices matter, where power, all power is shared. And she is hoping to bring that vision into being. And so I want you to hear more from her this morning. Will you join me in welcoming Marnita Schradel? Hi, I'm Marnita. Hi. I, I'm excited to be here. I'm actually deeply moved to be here. This idea of radical hospitality, of welcoming all to the table, um, came from a pretty simple place. I was a consultant, and I started doing a lot of consulting work for nonprofits. I didn't want to put things in landfill anymore. So I decided I would only represent individuals and organizations who added value to the community. And every single place I went 
What people said they wanted was, we wish we had more people of color at the table or in the room, and we wish we had more youth. How many of you have actually said the words at some point in a board meeting? Raise your hands. If you've actually said those words, we wish we had more people of color, or we wish you had more youth in the room, raise your hands. Look around. Look around how many people actually would like to have this happen. So this is not a theoretical thing, right? It's something that people say in boards of directors. We say it because the demographics are shifting. We say it because we know we be, need to be an inclusive community. But it is always said in theory. We wish we could do this thing. And everywhere I went, St. Paul Foundation, every single board, every place said they had this desire. We want to do this thing. And I'm just the person who made it practical. And I think that's really important. We took it from theory to practice. This is what we want to do. We went from strategy, this is what we hope to do, to this is what we do. And we've now done this for 12 years. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. I will tell you for the first eight years, because I came out of foster care, as we started doing this thing, the first 14,000 people came to my home and I cooked for them myself. This is all centered around a feast that is appropriate from vegan to carnivore. It is a technology. It is something that any of you can learn to do. You can learn to do it as a group. You could learn to do it for your congregation. Because I'm seeing lots of room here for more people of color and more for more young people to be here. I have a feeling that you have a need for this, not just to give it out into the world and to do something great for the world, but it actually might be something useful for you in your own lives and bodies. We've now had more than 40,000 people to the table, but the first 14,000 came to my home. And the first thing that happened, and this happens a lot for people of color, by the way, is when we have really good ideas, people say, well, it's just Marnita's authentic, personality. So I'm going to tell you a little about me because it's helpful. I came out of foster care. I have a lot of stress responses. I actually don't like people all that well. I'm an introvert and I'm a scientist. People see me as a socially graced extrovert. But in fact, even in this model that I built, I hide in my kitchen normally and cook. Because every time I come out of my kitchen, people say I'm so loud and I'm so big and I'm so different that I want to crawl back into a shell again. And so Izzy was a way for me to have relationships. And for the first five years, we just ignited enduring cross-cultural connections through intentional social interaction. And when we said that, it was the way that you would say we blow our nose on tissue, right? Intentional social interaction at that point wasn't a model. It was the way we did it. We intentionally socially interacted. But when I thought about how people could intentionally socially interact, what inspired me was sitting in a brand meeting with Target officials or Target brand managers, and they explained to how many of you have been in a Target store? <laughs> okay, so how many of you spent money in a Target store? How many of you spent a lot more money than you planned to spend at that Target store? Okay, that's science. That science is called experience engineering. The granddaddy of experience engineering is actually Disneyland. And all these organizations, in fact, most organizations you use experience engineering, use it to extract wealth from you. It's almost used exclusively in the for-profit sphere. I'm just the first person who decided to take science of experience engineering and try, instead of extracting wealth, I want to extract your preconceived notion of the other. 
If I could build an experience that was resonant and sticky enough that I would no longer have to do repeated doses of it, that you yourself would go out and change your behaviors. So, 40,000 people, 38% come back and report within one year six major behavior changes. One of them is they are now welcoming the other into their home when they didn't before. One of those guys is a guy named Dave Kleiss. He's the mayor of St. Cloud. When we went to St. Cloud in 2008, they had the fifth highest number of hate crimes in the upper Midwest. Dave, at his very first table, he was in the state legislature for 13 years. He actually sat on my board for two years. And the day after the election last year, although we're explicitly nonpartisan, he texted me at six in the morning and said, I know you've been sitting up all night and I just want you to know I'll be bringing our community together. This is important because I'm up in St. Cloud last September, there was the stabbing that Fox News and everybody was trying to whip up and to hate Somalis. And the whole community came together and when people put mics in their faces, they'd say, you know, what do you think? And they'd say, well, we just found Jacob Wetterling's killer and his last name is Heinrich. Should we round up all the Germans? And when we met with them a week after that happened, because we were doing a table called Healing from Trauma up there, and Dave and everybody likes us, and so the head of the foundation, everybody was in a room, they said, we learned that from the table. We, we circled our wagons and we're gonna let them do that to us. By the way, that's a horrible expression. We shouldn't be circling wagons anymore. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I have to say that. Like, so we have these things, aphorisms, right? You learn them. Um, I grew up in a little all-white town, 60 miles north of Seattle. I have, um, my adoptive family is um, German and Irish. I love sauerkraut. But I was the only black kid in an all-white town, you know? So 55 years old, and there's still things that creep in. And I will correct myself when I speak, right? You know, things that parents said and grandparents said. I think when we're trying to build relationship across race, class, and culture, the one thing we can do is be honest when we just screw up, right? It's hard to break old habits as opposed to being upset that we should be using they and them. Practice it. And if you don't get it perfect, practice that. Practice it. It's a practice. So Izzy in self is a practice, okay? Izzy is something you can do. It is something you can learn how to do. It is something that people can do to make people feel authentically welcome in their community. It is radical hospitality. It is a feast appropriate from vegan to carnivore. No name tags are allowed. It relies on very specific things that you yourself can learn to do. So we've trained 1,500 people in this model. A lot of them are in suburban Ramsey, White Bear Lake, Roseville. They were getting 20 and 30 people at their community engagement events for schools and they were all white. Now they're getting two and 300 and they're across race, class, and culture. And the youth of the community are actually hosting them. And it's pretty exciting. So what we wanna do, if you will share your wealth, we know you work hard for it, is we want to make this model available to anybody who wants to use it. It's a perfect model to have a much more intuitive, um, and it's expensive to do this, like think Facebook. It actually takes money and because we pay every single person we work with well above minimum wage, at least double in most cases, if not triple, and we hire my staff of nine at the head office is, uh, we have two Ojibwe people on the staff, you know? So like we, I, we only have one cisgendered white person on the staff. 
And so um, we work really hard. We think as people of color that the easiest way to build equity in a community is to hire us. We are smart, we are capable, we are competent. Hire us. So like our new caterer is a 22 year old young black woman who I'm also mentoring. And we pay her to throw, help build the feasts. So every part of this is a sustainable, intentional, social interaction. Those words each mean something to us. We are now places like Owatonna, where they were spitting on people, immigrants on the street. And now the entire town is being trained in the model to welcome others. We're in Scott County, where it's the richest county in the state of Minnesota, $86,000 a year median income, 90% white. We did our first table October 24th. And well, there's always this thing that happens in our debrief meeting, because 70% of our income comes from somebody who hires us. And people say, well, why can't you just go get the other 30%? Well, imagine this. How many of you are aware that there's white supremacists now doing stuff around? Raise your hands. Okay, go. So imagine, did you see the white supremacists in like Tennessee gathering? Imagine if we could drop on the ground with a giant table, not to counter protest. In fact, we'd pretty much not pay attention to them. But what we would have is an amazing feast across race, class, and culture with more than 50% people of color and 33% under the age of 24 having a conversation about what we wanted our community to look like. What a powerful counter-narrative that would be. Would you want to be with the angry guys with the tiki torches or would you want to be with us? <laughs> would you want to be this vision, this science fiction vision? What if we had the capability at the same time to spread the conversation guide that we were using on the ground there through the media, through social media, so that it was picked up all over the country? What would happen? That's why we're asking. Because that's what we don't have funding for. We don't have funding for the science fiction vision of it. We don't have, you yourself are saying, we want this. We built it. We can do this. We can do this together. And the cool thing about it is the fifth foundational principle of Izzy is fun. We get to do this while having fun with one another. Scott County, I'm just going to give you a little outcome. Because there's so many outcomes that happen from it. 3,000 people of color have gotten a job from one three-hour Izzy. We have better numbers in most job training programs, and that's a secondary impact. We have exceeded the goals of our clients 100% of the time. It's when we were just in Scott County, they said, you know, this happens a lot. They say, you know, we didn't say this at the meeting when we signed your contract. But when you said you could get 50% people of color in the room and 33% under the age of 24, we just didn't believe you. We know that normally 40 people come to our events and none of them are of color. But... We were in your room, you were here for four weeks, you had 140 people and more than 50% of them were of color and 33% were under the age of 24. And John Ulrich, who's a county commissioner said, well, what does that mean? This was seven days after the Sizzy. What does that mean? Like, so you had this happen and it took me a long time to say, you know, you're the one who has it in your strategic plan. I'm just the one who delivers it. Like, you know, like you should know why you want the people of color to be in the room. Rapidly, as a foster woman, they wanted me to um, suddenly cure poverty, right? It wasn't enough just to get people of color into the room and to build relationships, which is really what you needed to do to cure poverty, by the way. 
it will lead to that result. So somebody, if this was a public health issue, so somebody from the healthcare system set up and she said, well, we started hearing at a lot of the tables that we were talking, we were sitting at and we were talking about what it meant to be healthy. They talked about how the youth of the community all played, the black, the black and brown youth all played soccer while the white kids all played hockey. And it turns out in this community through Prior Lake, Scott Shakopee, um, Bell Plain, it's the exurbs about 30 minutes away from where we're sitting right now. And so it turns out that they were turning off the lights at the soft surface fields the minute it turned cold, so mid-October. And so the kids of color were all migrating over to the hard surface fields and they were getting hurt, physically hurt, because they were playing on hard surface fields instead of grass. So, and, and so, so somebody shared this story and the city planner who was sitting there said, you know, we've already had three meetings. The lights are on at the soft surface fields now. It was seven days. From the time it was no task force, no protest. Guess why they did it? They did it because those kids were now their kids. Those kids were their community kids. And so this woman from Scott County said, and you said, I was really freaked out when you said you weren't going to just survey. And I said, well, we spent a lot of time making things organic. This is all based on peer-reviewed behavioral science. If it works the way it's supposed to, they'll contact you. She said, I've had nine calls already. I've had emails and calls. People had to look me up to get my address. You said that would happen, and I didn't believe it. It's sticky and resonant. If you've walked through Target and spent ten times what you weren't going to spend, we just plucked your preconceived notion of the other. By the way, we did it without shaming you. Telling that you were wrong. What we gave you was a sustainable practice. Now the community is like, we want to do this all the time. But there are places that don't know they need it. That's also why we need your funding. We are in places where people are being spit on and there aren't being welcome. We have 19 communities in the state of Minnesota alone where they're having trouble and they want us, but they have no budget to bring us there. Your money would help us get there. Decision point, which brings kids of color um, and police and all sorts of stakeholders into, into relationship with one another. Likewise, is a, a fund, we didn't get any funding for decision point. So that's some of the things you're helping to do and to train individuals and organizations who do not have budget to learn this model so they can welcome radically hospitality, provide radical hospitality. That's another reason why your gift is meaningful to us. It is an honor to stand before you today. I'll be downstairs doing anything, but with your help, yes, we can really do this. This isn't science fiction. It is science, but it does not have to be fiction. Thank you. Thank you.